you for tuning in to another episode of Highly Functional. This is Brianne Showman, and I am joined today by Golden Harper. Golden is the creator and founder of Ultra Running Shoes, but I didn't get him on necessarily to talk about shoes. We had a great 90-minute discussion breaking down all of the myths that revolve around injuries and running and shoes and surfaces and you name it we talked about it except running technique that will come in a later podcast so whether you are an athlete a clinician or a coach i encourage you to tune in because this conversation will be highly valuable golden thank you for joining me today how are you excellent thanks for having me stoked to be here awesome i'm excited to talk to you we've been attempting to do this for quite a while and it finally worked out um, I read your background of, and how you got into creating ultras and everything, which really intrigued me and talking to you more. Like, I absolutely love your story and the paradigms you're breaking down, the myths you're breaking down. Um, so I'm really thrilled about this conversation. So I'm going to just kind of have you introduce yourself first. Like, who are you? How did you get here? I'll let you kind of go as detailed right now as you want, or as little as you want. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Uh, well, you might have to ask me further questions if you want more detail, um, but <laughs> I am a, uh, a, a self-proclaimed uh, shoe geek, uh, foot nerd, um, passionate about uh, running injury prevention and rehab, and uh, especially about chronic foot conditions and, and running technique. Uh, running technique is I've spent my whole life teaching and learning running technique and, and, and testing uh, different, uh, you know, um, methods uh for for decades now and so um those are the things that uh, that i love to talk about uh and then obviously i you know i'm i'm a pretty passionate trail and mountain runner and occasionally ocr dabbler as well uh and uh and 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 road marathon dabbler sometimes too uh at least at least recently uh but i, I did run my first marathons as a kid um and i've been racing since i was two years old so uh the the running uh I, 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 you know, come from a running family. Uh, my dad was working for Nike when I was born, Saucony most of my childhood. We opened a running store, shoe store when I was nine. Uh, so, you know, my experience goes from both the competition side, but also helping the everyday, you know, person and not even, you know, necessarily athlete or runner often, you know, just somebody that comes in with, with their feet hurting uh, on that side. Uh, for for a long time before Ultra ever got started, and and Ultra just uh, kind of became it wasn't started to start a shoe company. Honestly, it was just tinkering in the running store with how to best help our customers, and so um, that's kind of my uh, background and, and expertise. And um, any follow up questions, I'm I'm happy to answer from there. Yeah, absolutely. Well, let's kind of now let's just start at the beginning um, when you were two years old, but let's kind of. Because you did, I mean, you ran before anything like barefoot, minimalist, zero drop was kind of a thing. So um, it's kind of go through your experience as a high school collegiate runner. Like what, um, like go through your experience of like what you noticed yourself running with shoes as you're in the shoe store with traditional shoes and kind of why you realized like this was not an okay thing. Um, so, so I love shoes, like, and, and I always did, um, having, you know, my parents were sponsored athletes, um, even though both of them come from, you know, non-athletic, uh, families got into running later in life, but became sponsored athletes. I became a pretty big shoe nerd. Um, 
And, you know, I'm the kid who at age eight, I was having running technique video analysis done on me and had a technique coach there actually, you know, looking at my running technique. So if, when you have that done to you at age eight, you start looking at other people as well. So from a really young age, I was looking at the way people move. Um, and I think, you know, um, you know, all up through high school, I just love shoes. Like there's so many cool shoe technologies. I grew up in the era of like awesome shoe technology. You know, we had Asics Jill came out and Brooks Hydroflow, which had the like water, you know, stuff in it and Reebok 3D Fusion DMX, you know, the, the air pad pods that moved back and forth. Obviously we had Nike Air and Saucony Grid was probably my favorite. Uh, technology, the ground reaction inertia device, which was really just like a tennis racket in your shoe. <laughs> Probably didn't do anything, but it was cool at the time. Um, so, you know, I grew up in this era of, sh of shoe technology and I loved it all. Um, but I also uh, had this, this fight that was always in my head because, uh, you know, I was trained to run barefoot from a young age to kind of be like the Kenyans, at least, at least a few times a week, or when I got the chance on the grass or the track, um, and it was such a freeing feeling and same thing racing in just like paper thin cross flats or whatever. Um, you know, I, I felt like, like I moved differently. I moved smoother. I moved better. Uh, I moved more naturally, you know, and every time I would wear all these shoes that I loved, it wasn't the same experience, you know, and I think you just write it off as like, oh, well, that's just, you know, that's just what it feels like to run in shoes, but it really shouldn't feel different to run in shoes than it feels to run in not shoes. You know, <laughs> the, 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 at least the core movement shouldn't be that drastically different. And so, you know, I had kind of picked up on that from a young age and, uh, you know, I ran my first marathon at, uh, at age 10 and, um, and then I, I ran a world best 244 at age 12 and I'm wearing 5k racing flats, but even those shoes to me as a, you know, I don't know, 80 pound kid, um, that was a lot of shoe, you know? Um, and it definitely disrupted the way I moved. It, it was not ideal, you know? And I, I, the other thing you don't realize is our, our bodies are so conforming. You don't realize how much your toes are being crowded too. Um, and, and that was certainly happening as well. And so there, you know, kind of all these things that I had learned through my experiment, experimentations even just on myself but, but watching others as well and um you know by the time I went off to college it really was like this like I had all this like stuff I'd learned from selling people's shoes for the last 10 years um and trying to fix people's foot conditions and problems uh but also like you know other things that you know I had learned from my own experience and I wanted to I wanted to be the best I could at helping people overcome their foot conditions and their running injuries and, and get fit with shoes that actually didn't disrupt their movement, you know? And so I spent basically all of college just diving into that. Even my English papers were like engineering natural surfaces to reduce injury, running injuries, you know, 15 page, like, you know, researched out 50 references kind of papers, you know? And so I, I'm sure my professors thought it was weird, but, and I was, but uh, for <laughs> me, it was like, that's what I wanted to do. I wanted to, I wanted to be able to come back and manage the shoe store and be awesome at being able to help people uh, because uh, you know, so many people come in and they throw their orthotics in the garbage or they talk about how their doctor gave them this advice and it didn't work. And they're just kind of, they're kind of at the end of the line. They're like, I've tried everything. I still hurt. What do you got? You know? And at some point we gotta, we gotta look at this and say like, it's not working. We need to try something different. And, um, that probably summarizes my life, uh, from that point forward is, 
you know, get used to different basically. So yeah. I want to stick with the traditional shoes just for a little bit, because I think it's important to just always point out that, or, you know, bring up the fact that like all these shoe companies keep throwing different technologies in their shoes for you name it. Marketing purposes. And yeah, exactly. And yet we still have the same number, if not more runners injured every year. So it's like, obviously the shoe technology is not the solution to a lot of these problems. Yeah. And that was really one of the disturbing things to learn in college is like, I, I firmly believe shoes have got better. I mean, shoes are lighter, shoes are, you know, more flexible, they work better. I mean, they, they feel better, they're more comfortable. Um, you know, if, I do firmly believe in, in a lot of ways, shoes have got better technologies better. Uh, and, but to learn in college that like <sighs> injuries haven't gone down, that's frustrating. Mm-hmm. Um, to, be man- to be managing a shoe store and saying, we've got all these products and like all this new stuff we're doing, it's not changing anything. It's not getting better. Um, and, you, and the thing is, it wasn't hard to believe at all because I'm sitting there fitting broken people all day, every day, you know? And I just felt like this should not be the case. Like people should not be injured all the time. Like this is not normal. And, you know, I don't, I don't think throughout all of human history, you know, we had, uh, you know, let's just say persistence hunters, like, you know, running antelope down and, and breaking down with running injuries. I just don't think it was really a thing. So, um, or, or, or chronic foot conditions, you know, I mean, it's so frustrating. So yeah, absolutely. So how, like, what did you change in, whether it's your, how you sold or how you evaluated people? What did you change when you went back to that shoe store after college? Well, the one thing wasn't really a change, but it was, we put even more of an emphasis on it. My dad uh, has no cartilage in his knee. He's bone on bone. He had a a football injury in college. So, uh, you know, he was five foot. 10, 240 pounds, you know, uh, defensive end, blew his knee out, told he would never walk normal again, told he'd never run again by the doctors. And you just don't tell my dad he won't do X because then it becomes his like personal mission to, to do it, you know. And luckily for him, he got, uh, he got dared by uh, his, his best friend or one of his friends in his, his roommate their dad, his dad sent them a postcard and it said, you know, if you guys are, if you guys are really, you know, what you say you are, you'll do this, you know, and they flipped the postcard over and it's Las Vegas marathon. And I mean, we're talking like big weightlifting football players, you know, and my dad just doesn't back down from a challenge. He also has been told by the doctors he he can't, you know, he'll never walk normal again, let alone run. Uh, And of course, you know, he tries it. it, It's a disaster, Um, but it just fueled him. It, It raged him, you know, and um, you know, long story short, it, it, he failed over and over and over and over. I mean, we're talking crawling across finish lines, laying in gutters, you know, I mean, just begging for help. <laughs> um, and, uh, but, but he eventually like taught himself to learn to run like a Kenyan. Uh, and, you know, my dad talks about seeing Kenyans run and, and you look at them and it's like, they float. You know, and he's like, oh my gosh, I crashed down the road. All of us look around. Like we all crashed down the road. Those dudes float. It, I'll bet if I ran like them, my knee wouldn't hurt. And so um, he basically taught himself how to run like a Kenyan. And fast forward seven years and 110 pounds lighter, 
um, he wins the St. George Marathon, uh, runs 222, um, you know, obviously wins the race and, and becomes quite a great runner after that. And again, the whole time limping badly because he's, he's an inch shorter on one side and he has no cartilage on his knee, you know? Um, so, uh, but he learned how to protect it and, and make it, you know, manageable. And so I grew up having that technique drilled into my head. Right. And so, um, we had had an emphasis on the store on, um, on teaching people how to protect their bodies when they run to move the way humans are meant to move. Right. And, um, what happened is, you know, probably right before and while I was at college running, went through this, this thing, the running industry, where there was so much emphasis on treadmill gait analysis, um, from behind and pronation. And so we got the treadmill, we started doing the gait analysis and that took the emphasis away from technique, which we were, we had been doing. And what luckily my dad was smart enough and he actually tracked what happened. And what we saw in this time period is our injury rate basically doubled our return rate, basically doubled. And, um, he thought, well, that, that's a problem, you know? And so he, he told the employees stop doing the treadmill gate analysis, um, you know, stop assigning shoes based specifically on pronation. And, um, you know, and then I came back from college and it was like, okay, and now we've got cameras that let us see slow motion. So we can do gait analysis even better, right? And so then we put a new emphasis on gait analysis, um, but not from a like, how much are you pronating bull crap marketing garbage, but actually on how are you moving? You know, how is your foot hitting the ground? How is your knee positioned? Um, how is your posture? How are your arms? You know, how's your technique actually look? Is your body landing in a way to actually protect itself and to make this more fun, frankly? And so I think that's where the emphasis went. Um, that was a long way of answering your short question. <laughs> that's quite all right. Um, I want to dive into that actually further because I don't know how many people I talk to on a weekly basis that I ask them, have you had a running analysis just to like have that conversation if they have. And it's always, or most of the times like, yeah. in the running store, they did one on the treadmill. I'm like, all right, let's back up here. Like, has anyone looked at you like full body, like looks at what's going on. And I think that's, there's this big disconnect with people of what an actual running analysis should be looking at and it's not what they're doing in the running stores or at least yeah, there's, there's a marketing analysis that's built to sell shoes and then there's an actual technique analysis and they're two very very different things yeah for sure absolutely. yeah absolutely um the other thing i do just want to highlight is because i don't know how many people a lot of them are like well i'm bone on bone i can't run anymore like mentally shut down your dad is doing amazing and he has bone on bone. So it's, it's one of these things like we don't, regardless of what the diagnosis is, like we can't let that diagnosis limit us because most often there's a way around that diagnosis. Yeah. Where there's a will, there's a way. Um, there just has to be a strong enough will. Uh, I don't think people, the average person is um, as crazy, insane, strong-willed, use whatever like adjective you want to describe my father. Um, he, he's extreme in, in many ways, um, but you know, he found a way to make it happen. And, and frankly, he ran bone on bone for, you know, th three plus decades 
um, and his entire running career um, because there was no technology to do um, to do anything about it. And now you can get these uh, total athletic knees um, that are more of a compression fit. They're very different than, you know, so if you're out there and you're, you're pondering knee surgery, don't go get a, a regular knee surgery, please get what Deion Sanders and Tiger Woods had done. Uh, my dad was one of the first, you know, uh, people to have it done as well. Like, um, in a non-experimental fashion, you know, one of the first couple of years they were doing it. Um, but you know, he was able to have false cartilage put in and they actually told him like, you know, these, these wear out every year or two. Um, but you know, we just slid it open. We, we pull it out, we put a new one in and, and you're good to go a few days later. And for the average person out there, well, my dad's like, well, I I'm going to run, you know, 60 to hundred plus miles a week on it. And they're like, well, we might be seeing you every like six months then. Um, you know, 10 years later, it's never been replaced because he runs in a way that doesn't put pressure on his knee. And so I think my two takeaways here is like, you know, he ran in a way to protect himself, which you can too. But also if you're going to have um, a procedure done, like do your research and and get the right one done. Um, There's technology now that we didn't have even 15 years ago um, that, that makes it so so you can run, um, you know, if you're, you know, beyond all help. And, and frankly, they took a softball worth of calcium deposits out of my dad's knee. His knee could only straighten to about six inches and, you know, now it can go down. Um, you know, it was not very mobile at all. I mean, my dad's knee by all means looked like an absolute disaster. I mean, you would have thought that he needed a walker, um, just looking at him and his knee. Um, so you can do it. Um, there's a lot that can be done. And, and I think that's one of my themes too, is like, you can do this and we all have limitations and like, it's our goal in life to beat them. And so much of what I do is like, I want to hear people say like, wow, I think I'm going to be able to run till I'm 90 or I thought I was done running forever. And now here I am doing it. Like, those are the two things that make me the most happy. Um, you know, or, or maybe it's just like, you know, I had this foot conditioning that was totally limiting my lifestyle and, and now I'm, I'm good, you know? So any one of those things is, uh, you know, things that I've kind of structured my life around, you know, fixing and and helping and, and being able to hear. So yeah, pretty cool stuff. Awesome. When you started creating or tinkering around to just see what you could create with ultras, um, what was like, what were some of your focuses? What things were you trying to like re- or like create in this shoe to make it so much different and so much better for what the foot is actually made to do and what the body's made to do? Um, so, I mean, it was really in my head, it was very simplistic. There were two things that one, which we had been doing for a long time and another that came with, with, you know, high definition, slow motion cameras. Um, the first was, uh, just getting the toes to spread out, you know, and, and this really started again with my father at the store. If anybody had any sort of foot condition, uh, we would basically skip open the laces on the shoe. So there was no laces in the front half of the shoe. I was going to see if I can see one. I don't see one lace that way. Um, but basically get rid of the laces in the front half of the shoe. Um, you know, just kind of skip around the laces instead of going through them. And we had enormous success with this, like so much so that, uh, you know, after five or 10 years there, it got to the point where about half the people at any local road race, you know, had some form of uh, skipping around the laces in the front half of their shoe. And I think this is because for 95 plus percent of people, uh, their feet in the front 
part of their feet are much different shaped than their shoes are, which was something we hadn't really picked up at the time. We were just like, oh, the feet are wider than the shoes, you know, or, or the toes just need more room for some reason, you know, um, shoe manufacturers are making shoes, you know, look a certain way to make them look fast, but that's not actually working for how people need shoes to be. Um, and so that was the first thing that we kind of experimented with. And it, at, at the point I started to really get into things uh, after coming back from Hawaii and, and college and, and being back managing the shoe store, we'd been doing this for about 10 years at this point in time. Um, and we had tons of data on it and we knew it worked. Uh, we didn't know why, uh, but we knew it was really successful. And, and then the second thing that came in is when we put this renewed emphasis on slow motion video analysis of watching people run, particularly from the side, um, you know, uh, and, and really looking at their, the way they hit the ground, um, you know, foot knee angle, you know, um, and all the way up, right. Full body. And what we found is like people ran totally differently in shoes than they did without shoes on, especially the people who were hurt a lot, which was most people we're talking with. The people that seemed to be not hurt, they ran more similarly shoes and not shoes. Um, but the vast majority of people that we see ran very different without shoes on and frankly better. Um, a lot better. Um, they ran the way we would teach them to run, but they did it more instinctually without having to, to be taught. And so I always tell people like, take your shoes off. It's a running lesson. It's free. And, you know, you don't need any special instruction. Your body will instinctively start to do the right things just simply by taking your shoes off, which is really cool. Um, you know, find a smooth piece of sidewalk. It's, it's a hard surface and your body's going to have to do some things to make that not be uncomfortable, basically. Um, shoes mask a lot of, uh, of pain, essentially. And, but they also allow you to go through movement you're not supposed to be going through that humans weren't created to do. And so that was really the second thing that I got looking at. And, you know, one day it just was like, man, this is, this is frustrating. We're sitting here trying to give everybody a lesson on how to make running more fun and protect their bodies and like not get injured. And, you know, my dad's comment was, well, we sell them a pair of shoes that undoes everything we teach them every time they go out there. We get one shot to teach them a lesson, but then the shoes we sell them get a shot at them every single day that they run in them that kind of undoes it, you know, makes it a lot harder to do. And that's not to say you can't run well in any shoe. You can with a ton of training, but it'd sure be nice if you didn't have to go through that. And most people aren't willing to put in the work. And so that was really like the flashpoint, right? Where it was like, it's the shoes. Like, shoes are jacking with the way people run. And, um, and then I just started delving into like, what is it about shoes? Like what's causing this? Okay. Well, square one for 10 years, we've known that shoes restrict the foot's ability to hit the ground, spread out and absorb impact naturally. Okay. Um, we can't really see that in slow motion video. It's inside the shoe. Um, but we know it works. Right. Um, and then step two, what we're seeing is when you watch somebody run without a shoe on, um, you know, you see them run in a way where their foot lands mostly underneath their knee, their knee is bent. And there's this big three foot spring that goes from your hip all the way to your toes that then bends and absorbs impact. Right. And, and that works beautifully when we watch people run slow motion without the shoes on. But then when we put them in a shoe, what we see is the leg goes more straight before landing. The toes are up, the heel contacts the ground out in front of the knee. 
Um, and then, um, and then the knee isn't actually in a position to bend. So that, that big three foot spring isn't even in a place where it can work. And so you're asking one inch of cushioning foam, um, to absorb what is in, in reality, 500 pounds of force. Uh, you know, the average runner is about 175 pounds. Um, people hit the ground with two and a half to three times their body weight. So that's about 500 pounds of force. Well, if you do the math, it's just not pretty. It doesn't add up. One inch of anything is not going to dampen 500 pounds of force. It's just not going to happen. And so I'm looking at that and it's like, okay, that's not a fair fight. You know, we got to get people to land, right? So what about the shoes is causing people to run so poorly or unnaturally? And none of this stuff was published back then. Drop wasn't a term. I coined it. Um, and, um, I just started looking at the shoes and it's like, oh my gosh, like, you know, you, you take a shoe and you like weigh it on your finger and it's going to be a lot heavier, um, on the back half of the shoe. You know, it's not going to balance like this shoe does more or less. Most any shoe is going to crank off the backside. Right. And, um, so I start looking at them and shoes are not only, you know, twice as thick in the back half of the shoe, the midsole, the cushioning part of the shoe in every shoe at the time, you know, we're talking 2007 ish. Um, every shoe was exactly twice as thick in the heel as it was in the forefoot. That's just how shoes were built. If there were 10 in the forefoot, there were 20 in the back. If there were 12 in the front, there were 24 in the back. If there are 13 in the front, there are 26 millimeters in the back. That's just how shoes are built. Uh, that's just how it's done. And the other thing is like, you have all the like stability control and heel counter devices in the back half of the shoe. So like, you know, the heel counter is what gives the heel part of the shoe shape. Well, they're always heavy plastic, um, really firm. You know, you can, they make this kind of noise when you, when you hit them. Um, and that's a lot of weight too. And so what I found is not only was the back half of the shoe a lot thicker, but the back half of the shoe is a lot heavier than the front half of the shoe. And so you watch somebody go through a gait cycle, you see somebody run barefoot, they kind of look like this. Their foot stays like fairly parallel with the ground. But you watch somebody run in a shoe um, at the time, a traditional pair of shoes and even a traditional pair of shoes today, as the foot comes out in front of the body, the heel tends to drop and do what we call dorsiflexion, where the toes point up. And then the foot goes to swing underneath the body, um, but the toes are pointed up now instead of being level with the ground. And also the shoe is a lot thicker in the back half, which means it contacts the ground early. Uh, and what we found is the average person was contacting the ground two and a half to three inches out in front of their body more than they would without a shoe on. So that excess weight in the heel of the shoe was causing a lot of this dorsiflexion. Um, and then the excess thickness in the back of the shoe was making the foot contact the ground early, you know, two and a half to three inches early. And of course that was making it so that natural spring of your body that's meant to absorb impact couldn't work well. Um, and I just thought, wow, that's a, that's a huge issue. Uh, on the flip side, you know, running barefoot was not an option in my mind. I worked at a shoe store. I managed one. I knew most people weren't willing to go run barefoot uh, for the majority of their mileage, weren't willing to put in that work. Also, I had questions about whether that was natural to do that on a hard, flat, man-made surface, mm -hmm. um, which I, to this day, think it is not. You know, human bodies, you know, if you look at the structure of the foot, it's a tripod. It's meant to kind of like do this over things. And when you're on a perfectly flat, hard surface, it can't do that. And so my estimation was like, okay, you know, barefoot is great. The mechanics are better, but like the surface we run on doesn't work. Also, I was training for a rocky 50 mile race in the mountains. <laughs> um, 
again, like from a competitive standpoint, like protection is confidence and confidence is speed. Mm -hmm. And without that protection there, you know, you're dead in the water. And so for me, uh, truly barefoot or a barefoot style shoe was not an option. They didn't exist at the time either. So it didn't matter. Um, aside from, from five fingers had just come out. Okay. Um, and we were selling them at the store as a, a training tool to help people learn better running technique and to strengthen their feet, which I still think everybody should have a pair of, you know, barefoot style shoes to do those two things, work on strengthening your feet and, um, and work on your running technique, at least, you know, a couple easy runs a week. Right. So, um, so that's kind of where I was. And that's when, um, you know, I, I got into doing what eventually, uh, became a science project that eventually became ultra. So. <laughs> awesome. On the toaster oven. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> did you, I'm just curious, cause I know you have a very science mind. Did you ever get access to like a force plate or anything to see how the horses changed between once you started creating the ultras and people were running differently? Um, not at the time, but since yes. Um, and, um, you know, the interesting thing that people don't realize is the greatest amount of force actually comes at mid stance. Um, so just before push off, right. Uh, regardless. So like your landing forces really aren't that high compared to that. Um, and that doesn't change. That only changes with speed. The faster you run, the greater your impact force is. But your impact force is really happening at mid stance right before push off, right? Um, but it, it's uh, what the researchers call a vertical loading rate or an impact quotient. That is like, you know, if you look at um, a, uh, a force curve, you know, when you hit the ground, you know, this is what a force curve looks like. And this is a force curve of somebody running with good technique or what a actually uh, a typical you know barefoot runner will look like but if you look at most people running shoes their force curve looks like this where you have this big spike early and that's you um overstriding or heel striking one or the other and yes you can overstride while forefoot striking too and we actually saw a lot of this during the barefoot running boom and it caused a lot of problems people were overstriding while forefoot striking and they were blowing the crap out of their feet and this caused a lot of stress fractures um you know we want to see this nice kind of smooth even curve we don't want to see this here and that's what we were able to confirm through research using force plates and other things that it did work you know we get people running barefoot get people running in um, shoes that have now been termed zero drop shoes that, you know, we, we came up with that term, um, and, or really just people running properly, regardless of what's on their feet. Um, they have that nice smooth impact curve, which is, which is a natural curve that your body's built to deal with. Um, and really, you know, just, um, you know, getting people in alters, teaching people proper running technique, um, or having people run barefoot eliminates this impact quotient or vertical loading rate, um, or at, at least smooths it out greatly, um, which, you know, we then believe will reduce injuries long-term. So, um, yeah, great question. Pretty cool stuff. Did you like before creating the company or like the company got to the size it is now, um, did you kind of like test them out by selling them in your store initially? Yeah. So that's how it all started. Um, so right after kind of all this thought process of looking at how shoes were built, you know, tinkering with shoes was really normal at my house. I know it sounds weird, but like, you know, my dad did all kinds of crazy crap with shoes. The, the shoes he, you know, won many marathons in were, 
had holes drilled out of him and stuff to take weight out of the heel of the shoe. He found that the more weight he took out of the heel of the shoe, the less his knee hurt. Um, so stuff like that was pretty normal. Glow in the dark paint that had to be recharged by running under lights, you know, I mean, all kinds of stuff. Right. And so I go to my dad and I'm like, dad, all shoes are twice as thick and twice as heavy in the heel as they are on the forefoot. I think that's what's making people run wrong. Like, I think this we're onto something here. And, and I'm like, I, I want to take the midsole out of the shoe and replace it with a, a level midsole. You know, and I understand we still need cushioning um, because cushioning will mimic uh, on a hard flat man-made surface. Cushioning will mimic the feel of running barefoot on grass or on dirt. Okay. And, and he's like, okay, uh, well, you know, 275, wait till the glue bubbles. And it's kind of like, well, we'll do this downstairs. So mom doesn't notice because she doesn't really like it when we cook shoes in the oven. But um, <laughs> so, you know, bust out the toaster oven, head downstairs. And, you know, I throw a pair of shoes in with a, with a one piece outsole that's easy to remove. Um, pretty simple pair of shoes. Left it in too long. The glue had been bubbling a little too long uh, and melted the laces and some of the TPU. I mean, the hideous shoes, right? I mean, they just they look like a science project uh, when I got done, but, you know, get a pair of pliers and rip the outsole off and uh, the rubber and rip the midsole out and put some Spenco foam in, um, which is this really high quality cushioning material and, um, and then glue the rubber back on and I go for a run. And for the first time in my life, I'm running in a, you know, what I would call a normal cushioned running shoe. I've, of course, I've got the, it's a size too big. So my toes can spread out and there's no laces in the front half of the shoe either. Right. Um, but for the first time I'm, I'm running in a cushioned running shoe and I feel like I'm running barefoot in the grass. They feel from a biomechanic movement standpoint, they feel the same. It feels like I'm running in my cross flats, you know, type of type of thing. And for me, it was a, it was just like a moment, you know, it was a great moment. It was like, thank you. You know, like it, it feels great. Um, and, and that's what I knew I was kind of onto something. And then I decided like, okay, I'm an experiment of one. Well, how about an experiment of more? So let's test them on the staff. And we had about two dozen people working for us at the store at the time. All but one of them uh, really loved it. Uh, I ended up making shoes for them. We use 1984 Saucony Jazz Originals that have a two-piece midsole. And the one piece was just the part that was comes from the heel and drops down to, um, to the forefoot. And so I went into the local shoemaker who actually uh, ran uh, whitewater trips with my dad. And I said, hey, Robert, um, I want to take this second piece of midsole that's this heel that drops down to the forefoot out of the shoe. So there's just that one bottom piece of midsole, the white you know, piece of the midsole left. And he was like, well, why on earth would you want to do that? Like, I'm, I'm a cobbler. I add shoes. I usually add things to shoes, not take things away, right? And I explained it to him like, okay, well, you know, think about it. When you're, when you're level, your posture is the way like you were built to be. And you would move the way you're built to be. Um, and it looks like from a running standpoint that that, you know, extra thickness in the heel of the shoe messes with the people, way people run. I think it gets them injured. And I think the same thing happens when people are walking. And he looks at me and he starts shaking his head and he's like, you know, he's a second generation shoemaker. He's a certified podorthist. And, and he just starts shaking his head and he's like, well, that sure makes a lot of sense. And so he ends up making this, this run of a couple dozen pair of these original, you know, 1984 shoes that have been modified because they're easy to do with and had a visual. And, and we test them out on the staff, great results. And what really happened is somehow I, uh, I had a customer that I, I couldn't figure out how to help. And I was right in the middle of all of this. And 
we were just kind of in an impasse and he's like, well, what are you wearing? <laughs> you know? And I'm wearing these crazy looking shoes, you know? Um, and I was like, Oh, it's just a science experiment basically. And he's like, well, what do they do? I'm like, well, you know, it looks like they help people run better. And he's like, well, would that help my knee? I'm like, theoretically, yes, but they might hurt you too. And he's like, well, can I try them? And we just happen to be about the same size. And so I give this guy a pair of shoes and he, he goes outside and runs on, he's gone a while. And I'm like, I jacked my shoes, like, which occasionally happens at a shoe store. You occasionally <laughs> have people put a pair of shoes on and, and not come back. Um, not very often, but it's a thing. And, uh, but he did eventually come back and he walks over. He's like, I'll take them. I want a pair. And I was like, dude, those are my ugly, like old sweaty, like gross shoes. Like <laughs> you most definitely will not take them. Um, and he's like, well, can you make me a pair? Cause he's like, I can tell it makes me run differently. And I, I think it will help my knee. And I'm like, just promise me you won't tell anybody like keep this on the down low. I don't want to get sued. Like, but yeah, I, I feel for you, you know um, you know, we understand your plight. Um, so we get in a pair of shoes and it's a few weeks later and another guy comes in he's like, who sold Joe the hacked up shoes. And I'm sitting there like, Oh my gosh, like tell this guy not to tell anybody, you know? And I was just kind of like on the fit bench, like, yeah, that was me, you know? And he's like, ah, oh, heck, sell me a pair too. He's like, I've known that guy forever and his knees always hurt. Now they're not so bad. So, <laughs> and um, same thing, swear to secrecy. Do you know what happens when you tell people not to tell people things? <laughs> they they tell, tell everybody. <laughs> yeah. It was a nightmare. Um, pretty soon, like every, it's like fight club at runner's corner. People are coming in and they're just like, yeah, I'd like to try on the hacked up shoes, you know? And we're just like, all right, what's the password? You know, like, cause they don't exist, you know, <laughs> like, um, and uh, we pretty quick caught on to like, this is a, a bad situation. Asics is going to be really pissed about us cutting the gel out of their shoes, you know, um, and, and still selling them. And so uh, this is where we, we turned it into uh, another experiment and we sent these full page surveys out and we said, you got to bring these back in six weeks. We'll pay you 10 bucks in store credit to do it. Um, but we want you to run a full six weeks on the shoe and tell us your experience. You know, is your shoe wear different? You know, do you land differently? Do different muscles get sore or get used more? Uh, is more pressure going certain places and less pressure going other places? Did did you get new injuries? Did old injuries go away, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and so we started, we started selling the shoes and sending them out. And we, we caught on pretty quick to um, attempting to have a try-on pair there for them. And then we would sell them a fresh new pair that they would then take over to the shoemaker and have him um, you know, cut up. And in that first year, we sold a thousand pair of these modified, what we pretty soon came to call zero drop shoes. And that was because uh, over at the shoemaker, uh, when we're modifying them, we would be measuring the thickness of the midsole and the heel and the forefoot. And we'd use these millimeter rulers and Robert would talk about like, Oh, it's still, you know, it's still dropping, you know, about two millimeters from the heel down to the forefoot. So we'll have to sand a couple more millimeters out. So he goes back and sands it out and we measure it again with the millimeter rulers. I think I've got one right here. Um, and um, yep. You know, I've got a couple of these babies going. And it's like, okay, um, you know, it's dropping zero millimeters from heel to forefoot. And I'm like, Robert, you're a genius. We don't have to call them hacked up modified shoes anymore. We can call them zero drop shoes. And um, so that's where the term came from. It's interesting because it was a term to describe the cushioning of the shoe, um, which was lost on the barefoot uh, style shoe company makers. Um, because when the first 
uh, barefoot style shoes came out, they called them zero drop shoes, but they had no cushioning in them, um, which is hilarious because again, zero drop referred to the cushioning of the shoe. Um, the cushioning was not dropping from the heel to the forefoot. <laughs> um, so that was, that was the description anyway. Uh, so he would do all these shoes and we got all these surveys back. We had all this data and we, he did a thousand pairs of shoes just in that first year alone, right around a thousand, which is just an insane number of shoes, you know, a smaller running store that would be as many shoes as they might sell in a year. Um, so, uh, it, it was a crazy deal. And the, the success we had was phenomenal when we, when we took the data and really looked at it, what we saw, we had five major areas where we saw uh, mass uh, success, um, like 90 plus percent success rate with plantar fascia issues, um, shin splints of all varieties, um, runner's knee, IT band, and low back issues. And the, the middle three made sense to me. Okay, if you, you're not landing dorsiflexed, you're not hitting the ground, you know, uh, with your heel out in front of your knee, you're landing in a way your body can absorb impact. Of course, your shins and knees aren't going to hurt as bad. Um, you're going through a more natural movement pattern, whatever, makes sense. But the plantar fascia one and the low back one, like I was at the time just like, wow, where did that come from? We didn't, we didn't see that coming. Now I get it. You know, we know plantar fascia issues are caused by lack of blood flow, um, caused from the foot being out of position, um, not caused from inflammation. We've actually renamed it plantar fasciosis, not plantar fasciitis now for that reason medically. Um, and same thing with low back. It's like, yeah, simply, you know, you've got a heel and a shoe that is that changes all the angles all the way up and puts a lot of pressure impinging on the low back. And so we had a ton of people that were actually not runners, walkers that were overweight, um, would take their entire shoe closet into the shoemaker and have him loft the heels off their shoes because it helped their back feel so much better. Um, anyway, that was a long way of saying we, we had all this data and we compiled it. And, um, of course we then pitched to the shoe companies, um, and basically said, look, if you will build shoes, so the toes can spread out, and so the heel and the forefoot are the same distance off the ground, um, you know, and keep a traditional amount of cushioning in there. Um, here's the data that shows these injuries get a lot better, um, which means people are going to be running more, which means they're going to buy more shoes, which is good for all of us. We will buy thousands of pairs from you, meaning we will give you hundreds of thousands of dollars. We don't even want to sell this to you. Just make them and we will buy them. And I thought, sure, like, oh, of course they're going to do that, you know. And every shoe company was basically like, yeah, we're not going to do that. Um, you know, don't you know the way running shoe marketing works? You know, your heel is going to hit the ground. Our cool cushioning technology is going to save you from that impact. And I'm like, well, scientifically, that's bullcrap. Like no, no one inch of anything is going to cushion 500 pounds of force. Yeah, but nobody knows that. You know, it sells shoes. Um, and, you know, it was just, and the other, you know, argument, which was fair, I'm a little more compassionate now than I was then was like, they would say like, well, we have a built-in group of customers that likes the way we do things now. We can't change things on them. They won't like that, which is true. Um, but at the time I'm like, but people are hurting less, you know, like how can you not make something that we basically have proof is fixing people? Uh, it was so frustrating at the time. Um, and so uh, eventually didn't get any shoe companies to make it. And, uh, you know, my cousin, Jeremy, uh, really, I had known for quite some time, like, okay, we have to, we're gonna have to build these ourselves. Cause like, you can't just keep hacking up shoes at the store forever, you know? Um, and he helped find the connections and, and, and drive us to the point that ended up creating Ultra, which I, 
did not want to do. At the time, we had had the same seven running shoe companies since the beginning of running shoe time, basically. Like starting a running shoe company is like the fastest way to go homeless, right? So um, I knew it was like career suicide, but we did it anyway because it, it was the right thing to do and it had to be done. Let's take a quick break now to talk about OS first compression and bracing. It is commonly known that compression helps with circulation. We see that medically decreasing your risk of blood clots. We see that on flights using compression to decrease swelling. And even with racing, a lot of times we'll see it with decreasing or improving our circulation there as well. What you might not know though is we actually decrease the fatigue in our feet and legs when we use compression while training. Why is this? The added compression actually helps the muscles fire faster and better. So that means all those little small muscles in your foot and lower leg don't have to work quite as hard when you do every single thing you do. Long term, it means you get to perform better for longer. So check out OS First Compression for yourself. Test it out. See if you get those amazing benefits that I notice for myself. You can head over to osfirst.com to check out all of their amazing products. And if you use code GETYOURFIX at checkout, you can save 15%. You can also head over to getyourfixpt.com slash partners and get a direct link to OS First as well as see all the other partners that I have some discounts for. And now let's get back to the conversation. What's really funny about the big shoe companies, like it wasn't like you were telling them like, stop making all of your other things and just make these. It was just like, add this to your collection. <laughs> right. Yeah. But I think they saw the contradiction. Like you can't, you can't really market both. Right. Um, I mean, I think you could figure out how to do it, but I don't think anybody saw a way to do it where you're really coming in and saying, you know, with traditional shoes, you're saying the shoe will save you from impact, which is scientifically not possible. Um, but, but that's what the marketing has been forever. And what we were saying is the shoe will help you run in a way that allows, allows your body to save you from, from problems. Um, it's not about the shoe. It's about you. You know, it's, it's not that the shoe is magic. You learning to run in a way to protect your own body and to run in a natural manner is magic. The shoe is just a tool or what I call a coach that comes in a shoe box that makes it easier to do that. It's just cheating on your way to learning to run more naturally, learning to run more fun and in a way that is more protective um, for you. So um, that's, that was kind of my take on it. But I think for shoe companies, it's like, well, we can't tell that story because it would undermine our other story, you know, yeah. that we've been telling for 40 years. We, we don't want to tell everybody we've been doing it wrong, wrong. for 40 years, you know? <laughs> and I think, you know, a couple of companies tried to kind of like side skirt it and do that a little bit when they made more like natural ish or minimalistic ish mm -hmm. shoes, some of the big shoe companies. And they, they just weren't able to find a good way to, to do both of those things at the same time. And I think that was the problem to be fair. Yeah. And now you may say that I have noticed that like a lot of those shoes have kind of just fallen off. Um, curious. Cause you did your surveys with everyone to kind of find out like what got better, what, and then even what got worse, what sort of things were you finding people and were noticing, or were there as far as like aches and pains, sorenesses, things as they were transitioning? 
Um, you know, we didn't see any, um, any real correlation with any injuries getting worse. Um, you know, one or two people here or there would have something pop up, but there wasn't anything, um, you know, that we saw in more than that, really. Uh, you know, what we did find is the cushion level of the shoe changed everything. And this is a huge lesson for people going from traditional shoes to a more natural shoe. Um, what we found is if we put them in a less cushioned shoe than they were used to, uh, they would get sore for a lot longer. If we put them, uh, and when I say sore, I mostly mean like foot muscles, calf muscles, maybe butt muscles, like glutes, right? Um, but mostly calves uh, and specifically soleus. Uh, and, and maybe a, a little bit of Achilles, right. Um, which is not a muscle, but, um, so what we saw is like, if we put them in a, if, if we took a more cushioned shoe than they were used to, and we leveled it out and, and we had them running that almost no soreness, like no, like they're like, oh, I didn't notice a difference. Right. Um, if we took them from the amount of cushioning they were used to, and put them and, you know, leveled the shoe out and, and made it zero drop. Um, they would have about a week of calf tightness on average, um, which is fine. Like that, if that wasn't happening, it kind of means it's not working to a degree, in my mm -hmm. opinion. Uh, if we took them in a little bit less cushion than they were used to, then it went to three weeks. The thing is, we also track this with five fingers, which are no cushion. And what we found is the average person um, going from a traditional shoe to five fingers took nearly a year anywhere between six months and a year to um, get that calf uh, tightness or calf soreness to eventually, you know, kind of come around and stop happening. And so uh, I think the take home message here is like, it's working, <laughs> you know, for one, like the fact that, you know, your foot muscles, your calf muscles, your Achilles is getting stretched out, your glute muscles are getting worked more. Um, that tells you that, you know, your movement pattern has changed um, and that those muscles are, are having to do work in a way they weren't before. So A, it's working, but B, the cushion level of the shoe in general um, affects how long it takes your body to get used to it. And uh, in, in my estimation, we should be starting people with more cushion to eliminate the negative responses that can happen early. So, you know, we started taking people from traditional shoes to five fingers back in the day. And when I say we, I mean the industry. And we saw these stress fractures and people getting injured. And it was all foot problems. We, we've, we gloss over the fact that knee problems were at an all-time low when this was <laughs> happening, okay? Um, knee and joint, anything above the ankle, basically, all-time lows when we had a ton of people running barefoot style um, or in barefoot style shoes. Um, but, uh, you know, so what we need to do though, to eliminate the, the negative responses that have is we need to get people in a cushion level that they're used to, or maybe even a little bit more. And so I always ask people, you know, they're like, what ultra should I get? And I'm like, well, what do you run? And they're like, oh, I run in, you know, I run in a, a Mizuno wave rider or a Saucony ride. And I'm like, okay, where are the torn from us? It's a little bit more cushion than those shoes but it's, so it's got, a, it's going to have a little more forefoot cushion than your shoes do and a little less heel. And, you know, you will run differently. You will run better. You'll run more naturally, uh, but it won't be such a shock to your system because the, the cushioning is going to be similar to what you're used to. And you'll adapt really quickly to that. Rotate with your old shoes for a week, two weeks, three weeks tops. Um, and it's going to go really smooth. And, and that's the case in, you know, probably 99% of people. But if we take them down in cushion, we put them in a shoe that's less cushion than they're used to. 
um, then, then that goes exponentially up how long it takes them to adjust. And that can cause problems and that could cause injuries because people just by nature are not patient enough. And so it's one of like my things I'm really passionate about is like, A, let's get people in natural footwear. Um, and when I say natural footwear, I mean heel and toe, same distance off the ground, heel and forefoot, the same distance off the ground. The shoe doesn't have any heel elevation and the shoe is shaped like a human foot, not like a torpedo. Um, meaning the foot stays in the exact same position in the shoe is when the foot is barefoot or not in a shoe. And, um, so that that's a, and then B let's get them in a cushion level that they're used to first. Um, cause we've changed their platform. And now that we've changed the platform really like scientifically doing experiments, you only want to change one variable at a time. So we change their platform. That's the variable we change. We don't want to change any other variables right now. And then once they're used to the platform being changed, the next pair they get, they can go with low cushion, less cushioning, and they can work their way down to whatever is appropriate for what they're doing, which frankly, you know, if you're running a hundred mile race in the mountains, you might need a max cushion shoe for those last 30 miles when, because it's impossible to train your feet for something like that. If your feet are the part that breaks down on you, we'll get to this in a little bit. Um, you know, more cushioning could be good. Uh, but generally speaking, you want to run in the least amount of cushioning that is necessary <clears throat> necessary for the application you're doing um necessary and comfortable i guess so um so that's a huge takeaway for me that um i wish we could have done uh, even better in the early days with yeah and i think that's a great point that you did that the train is going to matter i mean i run three miles on my trails here anything over <laughs> that and my feet feel highly bruised i went and ran ragnar zion and ran my wore my minimalist the entire time because they were dirt trails and I did great. Um, so yeah, that the like terrain you're on and how rocky it is and all everything is going to really make a difference as far as how much cushion is needed. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And you know, same goes for concrete or asphalt, you know, for most people compared to what they're used to. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And that all ties into, um, to landing response. And if you look at research going back 30 years ago, starting with Ben O'Nig, um, you know, this all comes down to landing response. Your body tunes out drop for the most part. We do negative 150 millimeter drop every day going up hills. We do positive 150 millimeter drop going down hills. Your body is very adept at adapting to different levels of drop. Okay. Um, what your body, you know, adjusts for is how hard you're going to hit the ground. And your body pretenses your foot muscles, your um, kind of whole posterior chain, so Achilles um, and calf muscles, and even all the way up uh, your leg to your butt. Um, your, your body pretenses that for what kind of surface or shoe or soft or hard thing you're going to land on. And if, if you don't know what I'm talking about, just imagine yourself running softly on the beach. You know, you're running barefoot on the sand. And your, your, your feet hit the sand pretty hard because um, your body knows it's landing on a, a soft, safe surface. But imagine you come off the sand and you run onto a concrete sidewalk and your body instantly without you telling it to, even if you didn't even see the sidewalk, your body makes an adjustment for with this landing response to where your body's like, ah, da, 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 da. you know, you immediately go to these really quick, short landing underneath the knee up on the toes, a little bit more strides to protect yourself in that situation. And so it shows us how both the shoe and the surface are affected by your body um, interpreting landing response. And, you know, same thing happens with shoes. We know from research that people hit much harder in thicker shoes, um, especially where the heel of the shoe is thick, the thicker and higher the heel is in the shoe, the harder people land. Uh, and likewise, the thinner and firmer the heel is, the softer 
they have to land. Um, now there's a trade-off there. Landing softer means that your muscles are doing work, um, which means they might fatigue earlier too, um, which is why we're seeing a trend in more cushioned shoes for racing shoes right now. Um, because, you know, the cushioning does pull pressure off of the muscles. Well, pressure doesn't magically disappear. It has to go somewhere. So there's a trade-off. You're pulling pressure off the muscles and putting it on the joints. Likewise, you know, when you go to a shoe with more cushioning, you're pulling pressure off the muscles, you're putting it on the joints. Um, so it, it, it goes both ways. Uh, and people just have to understand that. And you got to find a sweet spot for what works for you. Yeah. I'm so glad you pointed that out because I, I don't know how many conversations I have with people that are like, well, I need more cushion because my knees are like, I have bad knees. I'm like, no, 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 no. <laughs> like, yeah. Yeah. Can we talk about that real quick? Cushion. Yeah. I'm really passionate about this one. Like I always do this. I like, I get into a big crowd and I'm like, okay, everybody just spit out to me the first word that comes to your mind. Cushioning will save your, and it's a chorus of knees or joints, right? Almost all knees. Cause that's, what's been marketed for 40 years. And the thing that is just so pathetic about that is like every shred of research and every study from the last 50 years says that's not true. They all say that more cushioning puts more pressure on your joints. Um, they also say that cushioning does a great job protecting where cushioning is, meaning like cushioning will reduce stress fractures in your feet. It will pull pressure off the foot and ankle area. Um, and once again, though, pressure does not magically disappear. So it pulls that pressure off the foot and ankle area and it puts that pressure on the joints. And that's, that's really what you're talking about. It's my first of my four myth busters I'm really passionate about is just this idea that cushioning will save your joints. It's just not true. It might make it feel a little better, but the impact is still occurring. We know this through research. You might feel like, oh, it, it, you know, it feels fine or it feels better. It's like, well, when we put like impact markers on your knees, it might feel better, but it's not better. It's worse. Like, you know, it's, it's, it's not, you know, the impact is occurring at your knees at, at a very high level, higher than you want it to. Um, and, you know, so that's like a huge thing for shoe selection too, that people don't think about is if you truly understand the way cushioning works, meaning more cushioning is going to pull pressure off your foot and ankle, but it's going to allow pressure to go up to your joint level, knees, hips, low back, et cetera, shins. Um, likewise, no cushioning in a shoe or low cushioning in a shoe is going to force the muscles of your feet and your posterior chain and your legs to absorb impact, thereby pulling pressure off of your shins, knees, hips, back joints. Um, and so you kind of, I tell people like, where, do, where do you hurt? You know, <laughs> if they've got an Achilles injury, I'm like, sweet, let's get you some more cushioning, you know, but if they have a knee problem or a shin splint, it's like, yeah, we need to start working, working the cushioning out of your routine. Um, and that's really important for shoe selection is just knowing like, where do I usually get hurt? And that should influence what kind of shoe you get. And again, like to summarize, if your knees hurt, you need to work on your running technique and you need to look at the surface you run on, which is my next meth buster. Um, and, um, you know, but if you have a foot or ankle or Achilles issue, then, you know, maybe some more, more cushioning might actually be helpful for you, um, at least temporarily until, you know, you can get your body sorted out. So. Cool. Awesome. Well, now that we cover myth buster number one, let's go into number two. So two surfaces, um, and this is just a huge one. It's people don't understand how impactful that's the right word too. a surface is on, on their, their running technique, uh, and on their injuries. And so I actually did, um, a bunch of research on this in, in, uh, in college. And what we found, uh, well, 
let me kind of back up. You know, I'll ask people like, what are the most injurious running surfaces? You know, where do people get hurt the most? Do you have a guess? Do you know? Um, if you had to guess for yourself, what, what would you think people would say at least, you know, what two surfaces are going to get people hurt the most? I'd say concrete. Cause there's no get, or there's no vibration back to it. But then from there, like trails, just cause rolling ankles. Okay. And I'm talking more like, uh, true running injuries, chronic stuff that is more than, you know, keeping you out for more than a few yeah. days. Um, so they both start with T it's your tracks and your trails or your tracks and your treadmills, not your trails. Okay. Um, and the, so people are like, why? I'm like, well, first off, they're both soft. Okay. And people are like, well, soft should be good. Okay. Well, let's remember landing response. You hit harder on something that's softer for one. Okay. I don't think that's actually the reason people are injured because I don't think tracks and treadmills are that soft, but you'll remember about 20 years ago, we got new technology and treadmills. They got cushioned decks and all the marketing was like, treadmills are now soft. Your knees are going to stop hurting. Do you know what happened to injury rates with treadmills when we made them softer? Nothing because the body back to landing response, the body just said, uh, yeah, the treadmill's softer. So I'm going to hit harder now. You know, um, same thing when you insert a softer shoe, your body's like, oh, hey, my shoe's softer. I'm going to hit harder now. Or, hey, I just stepped off the concrete onto the grass. I'm going to hit the ground harder. The body has a preferred level of impact it wants to achieve. Okay. So I don't think that's necessarily an issue, but what is an issue is humans were created to move over undulating terrain. If you look at the way our muscle structure is set up, humans are built to ambulate over uneven ground. Our feet structure show it. Our muscle structure shows it. Everything about humans shows that we are supposed to be doing this. Okay. Well, treadmills are pancake flat and have no variation. At least your sidewalk has cracks in it and occasional dips. At least the road has some variation to it, right? They might be harder, but they have some variation. Your treadmill has no variation. Okay. Mm -hmm. um, so every step is exactly the same, which means if your biomechanics are not absolutely perfect, that it's going to magnify shock up your body and hit your weak link the same way every single step. So repetition causes a muscle imbalance that then causes an injury because most running injuries are muscle imbalances. And so when I talk about this, I'm passionate about telling people about what I call in-run PT or in-run physical therapy. Okay. And then I'll get there in just a second. So when we get to a track, the same thing is happening, but now you're going around a track like this. You now have a built-in muscle imbalance because you're That's leaning right. in and you're going the same direction around the track. So you have a built-in muscle imbalance. So talk about needing to do some PT to undo some stuff that is, you know, causing muscle imbalances here. So I'm a firm believer most running injuries are caused by muscle imbalances that for most people are caused by repetition. Mm -hmm. um, and if their, their gait and mechanics are not perfect, then that repetition is going to cause muscle imbalance. That's then going to cause an injury. Um, and as complicated as that sounds, the fix is really simple because uh, what we looked at in college is, okay, what if we got people on dirt or grass where the train is uneven? Now what happens? Well, what we found is, is full-time trail runners were like hardly injured at all compared to full-time road runners, even though on average, they spent almost twice as much time running, at least the ones we surveyed. So they're, they're running twice as much, but they're like, you know, like 80% less injured. I mean, it's just insane. Right. 
Um, and what we found is if we could take the average roadrunner and get them to do a third of their miles on an uneven ground, and it didn't matter if it was cobblestones, which are rock hard, but they're very uneven, or get them stepping up on curbs or just doing anything that makes their hips tilt, ducking under trees, whatever, get them trail running, get them running on uneven grass. If we could get them to do about a third of their mileage on uneven ground, they then became about as uninjured as full-time trail runners. And so this is your in-run PT, meaning when you're out there on a run, you are making an effort to get your hips to tilt and do what humans were created to do, which is ambulate over uneven terrain. Um, and if you can do a third of your mileage on an uneven surface um, or even simulating an uneven surface, then you are going to be so much less likely to be injured. It's scary. Um, so I love, I love that one. That's awesome. That's it's, it's, the, it's the easiest like injury prevention running tip out there and it doesn't require a lot of effort and it doesn't really require more time. As long as you're willing to realize that your minutes per mile are going to slow down a little bit, you're not going to run a seven minute mile on uneven terrain like you would on, you know, on the road, assuming yeah. you're fairly fast. <laughs> so in the first place, yeah. We can also promote the, like doing OCR because you are constantly like changing and moving on that. Yes. No, I'm a huge, a huge OCR proponent from that standpoint. I think most runners just run. And again, this is the repetition that causes the muscle imbalances that gets them injured. Well, OCR puts you into uneven terrain for one, and then it forces you to actually use your upper body and contort your body in all sorts of different ways. Like it is like the ultimate, like I call it OEM human thing where like we make the body do what the body's kind of supposed to do stuff. Um, and I would love to do a research study on o OCR runners and running injuries, because I think you would see like a ridiculous reduction in typical chronic running injuries. You know, your, your plantar fascia issues, your, mostly though your shin splints, your runner's knee, your IT band, your chondromalacia, um, your hip issues. Um, I think you'd see a mass reduction looking at that segment of people specifically for the reason that you mentioned. Yeah. Just thinking about through, like thinking through all the people I've talked with in the past and like my runners versus OCR, it is my run, like just flat out runners that are more of the just chronic injuries. The OCR people, it's more of like Oh, oh, cute, stupid oh, stuff. <laughs> yeah. 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 We can deal with that. You bounce back in a, a couple of days or a couple of weeks. No big yeah. deal. You know, meanwhile, people have IT band for six months or a year or, or, or Never. PF for a year <laughs> or two years or five, you know, it's, it's terrible. Um, so yeah. So cool. We got, we got cushion, we got, um, you know, we got surfaces. I think those are like, those are big ones. People need to understand from a shoe selection standpoint and a surface selection as far as not being injured. Um, so, and I, you know, I like to talk about foot conditions and pronation too. So those are always fun. Absolutely. What's your number three? Um, and number three is the pronation piece. Um, and you know, we've all been marketed forever that, you know, pronation is bad or over pronation is bad. And, uh, you know, flat feet are, are bad. And, you know, there can be some truth to this. Like I sold shoes for long enough to, to see enough kind of empirical evidence that there, there may be some connection there, but it really, you're looking at the whole body. And when you, when you look at pronation in a silo and, and we look at the research studies, there have been you know, over 200, it's been last count for me, 204 studies specifically on overpronation and injuries in the last 30 years. And two out of 204 drew any sort of correlation between injuries and overpronation. So that's 1%, folks, less than 1%. Um, what that tells me is we are spending a lot of time fitting shoes in running stores on something that's folklore. 
um, something that the research doesn't support. Why do we spend the entire shoe fitting process based on overpronation when 99 point you know plus percent of the research says it's not relevant? Um, that to me is is a problem. And you know, at the same time, if I see somebody that is just like, it's like, okay, we might want to do something for that person. Uh, but that's more than just foot pronation. There's other things going on there. You know, we have, we have problems at the knee level, the hip level um, that we need to address as well. And, um, you know, along with that, you know, studies show that, that uh, custom-made orthotics are not effective. They're not any more effective than, you know, a $5 over-the-counter thing. Um, and so, like, these are two things that... Um, that, that a lot of time and effort and money goes into that don't produce results. So I think my, you know, takeaway there is like, don't waste your time. Uh, when you look at the research out there, what the research tells us is you're going to be least injured in the shoe you're most comfortable in. Um, you're going to be least injured in the shoe that feels the most barefoot, relaxed, and free. Um, and so I kind of describe it as like, um, you know, house slippers or, um, you know, cushiony, um, you know, cushiony, but barefoot, barefoot cushion, you know, um, that's where people are least likely to be injured, at least for long distance running. And, and the research, you know, supports that. Um, so instead of like wasting time on pronation analysis or on your, you know, the, the height of your arches or whatever, I'll come back to that in just a second. Um, you know, really take, when you go buy shoes, put a shoe on, maybe put one on one foot, one on another. And go physically run outside, run down the sidewalk in the shoe and see what just feels more like it's not there, you know, that feels the most natural. It can still be, you know, to the cushion level you need or is, is comfortable to you. And again, comfort is the number one predictor of you being less injured. Um, but the shoe should feel too loose in the toes. It should feel like, wow, I got tons of room up there. You know, the shoe should feel like a slipper. It should just feel not there. Um, and that's, you know, that's where you should spend your time and, and go through at least four or five pairs of shoes and go run on them side by side and then try them as pairs and spend time running on the sidewalk in the shoes or, the, or try to mimic the surface you're going to run on um, and get the one that feels the most barefoot, relaxed, free, not there, um, house slipper like. Um, so, uh, and then, and then your arches like thing is like a piece of this pronation equation too. And you know, I have people say to me all the time, oh, I've got, I've got flat feet. There's just no hope for me. Like, you know, I have to have these orthotics because I have flat feet. I'm like, well, well, what kind of pain were you managing with the orthotics? Oh, well, I didn't have pain. My doctor just said I had flat feet. So I needed the orthotics. I'm like, <laughs> here we go. Like, okay, let's just think through this statement for a minute. You know, you spent $400 on a pair of custom orthotics, not because anything was wrong, but because your doctor said your feet aren't the shape that he would like them to be. This is just a way to make money folks. Like, and the research again, does not back it up. Uh, and again, like, you know, I, I love telling people with flat feet, like most of our greatest distance runners in the world, a majority of them have flat feet. Okay. Um, I'm talking to Anthony Familetti on his podcast, which is a, a fun one, reckless running guy. Right. Um, you know, and he's talking about going to the track and field hall of fame and he's like, yeah, I remember being there. Like now that we're talking about this and they have foot casts of all the great athletes, you know, you can see their, their feet cause they've taken casts of all their feet. I'm like, Oh, it's really cool. And he's like, but he's like, you're right. And I'm like, I'm like, what do you mean? You're right. And he's like, they all got flat feet. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, like all those foot guys, they all got flat feet. Nobody got arches, you know? Um, and uh, I just thought that was so funny, but it's so relevant. You know, you look at LeBron James, um, you look at Haile Gebrselassie, you look at, um, you know, most of our, our great, 
you know, long distance runners, they do have flat feet, um, you know, and so it's not about foot arch height. It's about arch strength. Um, and, you know, to be fair, some of their feet are flat because they haven't worn shoes growing up. Okay. Some of their feet are flat because their arches have filled in with muscle. And this is another thing we find through the research is uh, most Americans, as they start doing barefoot strengthening, um, if they have flat feet, they actually gain a little bit of an arch um, in the muscle, like kind of tends to tighten that area up. But if they have high arches, their arches actually tend to fill in and get lower. Um, same reason, muscle is filling the arch in. And so that's an interesting subset, just looking at studies of Americans um, doing barefoot strengthening work is, you know, the arches tend to moderate a little bit um, away from the extremes, basically. So that's a cool piece. And just good to know, like, you know, from an injury prevention standpoint, like you are not broken if you have low arches or flat feet, like go get your feet strong and then we'll talk about it. You know, maybe there's something we need to do there, but 98% of the time, all we gotta do is get your feet strong and everything is good. So just like take your shoes off. Like if you're wearing them right now, take them off. Um, if they don't need to be on, don't have them on. Um, I am shoeless 98% of my life. I put shoes on to run and to walk into stores with dirty floors. Um, <laughs> or if I'm stepping on something sharp, but you know, for the most part, I don't wear shoes. Um, and you should not either, um, you know, and, unless your job requires it or, or something. And then you want to put your foot in its natural position. Try to wear shoes that mimic, you know, barefoot. And if you're on a hard flight, flat concrete floor all day, that might be a shoe that is foot shaped and zero drop, but it has a fair amount of cushion to help that hard, flat concrete floor mimic standing in grass or standing on dirt. I this was a while ago, but I'm always barefoot as well. And I dropped something in my house and it shattered. And I was like, oh crap. <laughs> yeah. I'm barefoot now and there's glass everywhere. Always fun. <laughs> yeah. I, I usually have socks on, to be honest. Um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, cool stuff. Uh, so, do you, number four, uh, foot conditions. This is like a mind blower for most people. And it, that was a perfect lead into it. Uh, you know, people don't realize that 73% of Americans report foot pain each year. So look around you, three out of four people, adults, three out of four adults you see report, meaning they took the time to go to the doctor, go into a shoe store or fill out a survey that says my feet hurt and I'm here to talk about it. Okay. Um, this is not researchers going out and begging them. Okay. Um, so 73% report foot pain. Um, and yet when we go to the billion people on the planet that don't wear shoes, um, they go, they go barefoot or wear primitive, you know, sandals. Uh, what we find is that number is now 3%. And that's with us begging them, the researchers begging them, tell us anything about your feet that hurt. You know, you don't have to come report it. We're coming to you. Um, and that 3% versus our 73% is very different. First off, we have the quote unquote best shoes in the world here in America. Um, and, and they have no shoes or primitive sandals. Our, our foot problems tend to be more almost exclusively chronic foot issues. So bunions, neuromas, uh, tendinopathies, um, uh, you know, PF, plantar fascia issues, et cetera, et cetera. Okay. Uh, when we go look at you know, the billion people on the planet that don't wear shoes, theirs tend to be, well, I kicked something sharp. Um, I stepped on some coral. 
uh, I got a fungus, you know, something that you recover from in, you know, a, a couple hours to a couple weeks, right? They're, they're what we call acute problems. They don't deal with chronic foot conditions like we do that plague us for years or a lifetime. Um, and, you know, I think this all just really comes down to the fact that we, most people have not thought about this, but we actually deform our feet out of their natural position all day, every day. And, you know, you're starting to hear some researchers talk about this with masks right now, people wearing masks all the time, it's pulling their ears forward. And so plastic surgeons are preparing um, to do plastic surgery on people's ears in the future to pull their ears back. Um, And um, so this is what's happening with our feet is, you know, people don't realize like every time you put on a pair of traditional shoes, which is 99% of all shoes sold in America, it's raising your heel, it's pushing your arch up and it's crowding your toes together. You are literally deforming your foot out of its natural position. And then you're leaving it there for hours and hours and hours on end. So as great as it is to get a pair of foot shaped zero drop shoes for the half an hour to an hour you run every day. Um, you're going to have a much greater effect getting a pair of shoes for your all day, everyday use. Um, and, um, you know, there's lots of good stuff out there. This is a pair of lens. There's Vivo barefoot. There's, um, splay as a company making some cool stuff right now. Um, you know, there's plenty, uh, obviously zero, uh, makes stuff too. There's, there's options out there and they don't necessarily, you know, alter make some stuff. They don't have to be, you know, barefoot style shoes. If you're running, if you're on the hard flat man-made surface all the time, but they should be something that leaves your foot in barefoot position. Mm-hmm. Um, and that to me is what is, is a huge effect on people. And it's such a simple fix, you know, um, to such a, what is a seemingly complicated problem. Most people go into a podiatrist with a, uh, you know, with a bunion or an aroma and, you know, it it always, almost always ends up in surgery. It's a nightmare for years. Um, they come right back because, you get bunion surgery, fix the bunion, and then you put it back into shoes again that are not shaped like human feet. And, you know, people just don't realize this, that shoes and feet are not shaped the same. And, you know, um, back when I was doing ultra PR all the time, I would have, you know, these reporters talk to me like, well, what's different about your shoes? I'm like, well, they leave your foot in its natural position. They're like, well, what do you mean? I'm like, well, first off, like they're not, you know, our shoes are shaped like feet. And they're like, well, of course they're shaped like feet, they're shoes. I'm like, well, no, like 99% of all shoes are not shaped like feet. And they're like, what are you talking about? I'm like, take, take one shoe off for me. And they take a shoe off. I'm like, okay, now, now just put your foot next to your other foot that has a shoe on and, and look at them. And they would be like, oh my gosh, I've never in my life thought about that before. Like my foot is a different shape than my shoes. And people don't realize like feet are widest at the tips of the toes naturally. And shoes are literally shaped like, you know, pizza slices or torpedoes. Like they narrow at the end of the shoe. Those shapes are not the same thing. Um, and, and again, it's really simple. You're just trying to get people into, you know, something that's shaped like their feet are supposed to be shaped. And of course, you know, I'm a huge proponent, proponent of correct toes. Um, you know, this is www.correctos.com. Um, you know, this is a great way to start reshaping your feet because the reality is most of us, if you're listening to this, um, you've been in normal traditional shoes for decades, your feet now look like your shoes. And that is just like some people's feet are more malleable than other people's feet. You don't get bunions from your mother, but you do get your bone malleability or, you know, from, from your genes. And, 
And that determines how quickly your feet deform to look like the shoes you wear. But the reality is for most of us, especially as you get older, your feet look just like the shoes you wear the majority of the time. And that is not a good thing from a balance standpoint. It's not a good thing from an impact dispersion standpoint. It's not a good thing from an injury standpoint. And so reversing um, that, you know, deforming that your feet have had happen to them over the decades is huge and, and correct toes are a great way to, you know, do that. And obviously they will only fit in shoes that are shaped like healthy human feet. Um, so that's, that's another bonus because it forces you to get healthy footwear or natural footwear. Yeah, absolutely. Do you know, I'm curious, cause I've never really looked into it. Do you know what, like decades, years, like when shoes started being made, like what prompted any shoe company in general to make them pointed because not just athletic shoes it's like yeah all shoes so um this goes back to the middle ages um so um you will remember that horse riding uh became a thing and in the middle ages uh we had shoes developed for horse riding specifically for who rode horses right royalty Mm -hmm. military um, you know, heroes. Okay. The heroes rode horses. Well, they found that if they made the shoe pointier, it was easier to get in stirrups because stirrups had been developed. However, the feet bounced around in the stirrups. That's when they came up with the heel on the back of the shoe and the heel on the back of the shoe was built to latch into that stirrup. So the shoes that 99% of Americans walk around today are not walking shoes. They're actually horse riding shoes. They were developed for horse riding. They are shaped like torpedoes to slide into the stirrup and they have the heel in the back to hold into the stirrup. So just look at any traditional dress shoe that you see out there. Dress shoes are not walking shoes. They are horse riding shoes. Uh, but unfortunately what happened is it's just like today's culture where people more or less worship celebrities and want to be like them. People saw their heroes with these shoes and then they started making their shoes to look like them. Fortunately, you know, up until the last couple of hundred you know, years, most people didn't have money to have multiple pairs of shoes or, or really any shoes at all outside of moccasins for the most part or, or something you know, like that. So it wasn't a problem. You didn't have a mass amount of the population wearing shoes all day, every day until really recently, frankly. I mean, even some of our grandparents, great grandparents were not wearing what we would call traditional shoes um, all day, every day. Um, and so, you know, more recently, so that's really where the tapered toe box came from was just sliding into stirrups. Um, and that's, that's become a fashion thing. That's why it's built fashion marketing. These are things it quote unquote looks good. And these are what people have been told. I don't think it looks good. I think I go to the airport, like I'm around people that all day, every day wear natural shoes, meaning they are shaped like healthy human feet. They're, they have no heel elevation. And I leave the house and I go to the airport or I go to the store and I'm like, oh my gosh, everybody's wearing elf shoes. Like I just see elf <laughs> shoes everywhere, you know, cause, cause they also are like usually pointed out up. They've got a little to- toe spring <laughs> to them. So they're the toe spring and then they're pointy and then they've got the heel. Like I just see elf shoes everywhere. Um, but that is just like what we're used to. Right. And most people are used to seeing the opposite. So they, they see my shoes and they're like, wow, what's with the clown shoes. Right. Um, but it's really just a product of what we're used to seeing. And I think that's a, a really interesting, like, kind of piece of the equation uh, is like, you know, I, I always say, like, natural shoes are not ugly, they're alien. And meaning, like, when, when people first see something for the first time, it's alien to them, it looks foreign to them. But the more they see it, the more it starts to look normal and 
and then eventually it's good looking. And you even see this with fashion trends. There'll be these new fashion trends that come out and you're like, oh my gosh, that is so hideous. Like the ugliest thing. How did that get popular? How is that getting popular? Five years later, we've all seen it forever. Oh, it's so beautiful. You know? <laughs> um, so it really is just a matter of perspective. Um, and, you know, alien is, is the term I use there. Awesome. Thank you for that information. That's really fascinating. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, it's like, well, and so we should actually, you know, kind of like, pirouette that into um athletic shoes um because that's the that's the logical like explanation of where your question was going i feel like um so athletic shoes actually never had heels um they never had cushioning uh they they were built to be light and fast and um you know um so what happened though is bill bowerman comes along and he is, he has this idea to teach his runners to lengthen their stride because there's only two ways to change running speed. You know, you, you get a longer stride or, um, you know, so, so that's, that's the one that he focused on. Um, stride rate is the other. And he's like, well, uh, you know, I, I, I don't know if I can change their stride rate. So I'll try and change their stride length, but I'll have them run in a way that gives them a longer stride. So he's teaching length in their stride. And so they're out, you know, running in shoes with no cushioning and, ouch coach that hurts. Like, especially when I'm not running on the soft track or the soft grass that hurts my heels and other things like, and so Bowerman goes out and with the help of Phil Knight, they find these shoes that have cushioning. There's never been cushioning in shoes before to this point. No one has felt cushioning in shoes. Foam was not a thing in shoes. Shoes were just rubber. Okay. And now he's just working with elite athletes. So he wants the shoes to be as light as possible, but still make it so it doesn't hurt when they lengthen their stride. So he finds the shoes that only have cushioning in the heel. That solves his problem. It adds as little weight as possible. Thank you, coach. Now it doesn't hurt my heel as much to land there because you put this soft pad under there. Okay. Uh, well, people want to be like elites, you know, um, and we just talked about this with regular shoes and it's the same thing with, with athletic shoes. And it, it uh, and also like people had never felt soft foam or cushioning in a shoe before. So Bowerman and Phil Knight start selling these shoes, which were, were originally Tigers. Um, and, you know, people put this shoe on for the first time. Imagine you have never felt soft foam or cushioning in, in a shoe before in your entire life. And you put it on and you put that shoe out in front of you and you push into that soft foam with your heel. And it's like, oh my gosh, you think that was popular? Oh yeah. Yeah. That was crazy popular. Okay. Nobody thought of the like massive um, biomechanical implications of what happening, what would be happening now, obviously super trained, like highly elite runners. It's not going to mess with their biomechanics as much as the average everyday Joe, especially starting. The problem was that these shoes became popular at the same time the the jogging boom happened. So we have an influx of, you know, 10 times as many runners coming into the sport as ever before. And they're all now doing it in these shoes that have, that are higher, thicker and cushier in the heel, which actually teach them to run wrong from the day they put them on. Um, and that's how we got to where we are today, unfortunately. So there's a fun one for you. Thank you. <laughs> Bowerman. I actually, I really believe that Bowerman was like, you know, he wanted, he, he wasn't trying to 
do anything wrong. He, he was trying to improve things. He, he was just wrong. His theory was off. Yeah. You, you can't actually get people faster by lengthening their stride. Your stride gets longer because of your fitness. Um, and people, people need to understand that. That's, you know, we now know this, but at the, at the time it was a cool theory to test. That's, that's what's cool about science. It's never settled, you know, yeah. um, it's always evolving and we have to fail to learn. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, uh, you know, hopefully we learn from Bowerman's failure and from, you know, Nike literally coming out with the Nike Cortez and releasing a plague of bad biomechanics on the world. So. Well, and I think that's why it's important to have these types of conversations too, is because not enough people are talking about like, these are like the newer things we've learned over the years, just like any part of science. It's like, we don't do lobotomies anymore because we realize those are bad. Like this is the same thing. It's like we've learned, we're learning things aren't good anymore. Well, and it takes so long to get these things into the education system. The reality is if your doctor is not a research nerd, your doctor or your dentist more than likely is operating off of 30 plus year old research for 99% of what they do all day, every day. That's really unfortunate because the world's changed a lot in 30 years. Um, and everything we've talked about you know, today is just things we've learned in the last 30 years from a, you know, and most of this stuff that we've talked about is 20 to 30 years old as far as having like a lot of data and a lot of research on. It's not like, wow, this is new cutting edge. Like most of this is 20 to 30 years old and it still has not made it to the running doctors. It still has not made it to the running stores, through the shoe companies, et cetera, et cetera. And yet it's there for everybody to see. And anybody who does any research knows this stuff is true. It's, it's not really refutable. Um, so, um, you know, for the most part. Yeah. Always evolving, though. Always changing. Always learning, you know, always. And, and subject to change. <laughs> right. But this look, is the best we have at the moment. I look back. I've been a PT now for 15 years. And I look back to the stuff I was doing initially. And I was just I'm, I'm like, cringe. I'm like, Holy are you as embarrassed as I am? Like, <laughs> right? Oh, my gosh. I'm like, I can't believe I used to. Do, I can't believe I used to recommend that. I can't believe yeah. I used to teach it that way. I mean, even running technique, which is like kind of a trivial thing. I'm like, oh, I can't believe I used to do that. Oh, that's the, I can't believe I told people to like lean forward, you know, like, which right. is technically right. It just produces a terrible result. You know, yeah. So. Yeah. So yeah. many things. <laughs> awesome. Well, Golden, I am like, I love this conversation. I think it's going to be super helpful for a ton of people. Um, you, let's see. I know you, you have ultra feel free to plug whatever you want. And just if people have other questions for you, where can they reach out to you? Yeah, uh, I am Run Golden One on pretty much every platform, Facebook, Instagram, et cetera. Uh, I'm not super active on social media. I am on Strava, though. If you comment on a run for me on Strava, I will see it. I'll probably comment back. That is the most uh, active I am on social media, if you will. Uh, also, uh, you can hit me up at just rungoldenone at gmail.com. And uh, most all of this stuff and much more, I have injury guides and stuff on my website, goldenharper.net. Um, so, and there's contact form there. That's probably one of the other easiest ways to get a hold of me. Just go to goldenharper.net, hit contact. Um, and uh, yeah, we can get you there. And, uh, you know, I also travel around, speak, do injury prevention clinics, running technique clinics. Um, we didn't get to do uh, any running technique today, but um, that's something I, I love talking about and is probably the thing I'm the biggest expert in. Um, so if you're interested in any of that or coaching stuff, I'm, I'm around. Cool. And maybe we can do a part two and talk about running technique later on. Fine by me. <laughs> awesome. 
Well, thank you again so much for your time. I greatly appreciate it. All right. Thanks for having me. Have a good one. I really hope you enjoyed this week's conversation on Highly Functional. Before I go, I want to talk to you about my rope climb training program. In order to climb a rope efficiently and effectively, you need both strength and proper technique. If you have one without the other, it's going to be a lot more difficult to climb. You're going to use a lot more energy and you have more chance of failing. So if you want to be more efficient with your rope climbs in order to have more chance of success at your next race, pick up my rope climb training program. You can check it out at getyourfixpt.com courses along with all my other online programs. Thanks again for tuning in today. And now it's time to go out and be highly functional.